0: When I was in uh, high school, there was a song that came out. Uh, Some of the words are actually in your bulletin. I never thought we'd put Nine Inch Nail lyrics in our bulletin, but there they are. If you know who Nine Inch Nails is, they had a song called Hurt that was popular when I was in high school. And I kind of liked the song, okay, when it came out. Uh, All my friends listened to it. It was kind of real popular. Everybody knew it. But it wasn't until maybe ten years later, after that song was popular, about ten years later, Johnny Cash recorded the song Hurt, the same song that was popular before and it was, uh, he recorded a bunch of songs right before he died. Uh, they set up a recording studio in his house. His health was failing. And he recorded all these songs. And I believe the song was actually released after he passed away. And so suddenly this song that was kind of popular for a few years kind of faded away. And then Johnny Cash records it. And he says, uh, everyone I know goes away in the end. You can have it all, my empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And it was this really kind of dark, deep song. But when the man in black recorded it, and you heard his gravelly voice singing this, that then it got released after he had then passed. And he's singing about how everyone I know goes away in the end. It became this very prophetic kind of song. We're all going to die, right? It's, it's not a real upbeat song, <laughs> right? Not a real light one. But to hear Johnny Cash from beyond the grave reminding us of this stark truth, the inevitability that we're all going to pass, that everyone I know goes away in the end. It became this song that was pretty heavy and pretty dark, but at the same time very profound to hear Johnny Cash singing it. And so the truth is for all of us, uh, whether unless Christ returns in our day, in our time, we're all going to die. And not only are we all going to die, everyone you know is going to pass away at some point. So he says, everyone I know goes away in the end. And so the picture there is, it can be kind of scary, kind of overwhelming. Psychologists will say when we look at the greatest fears of man, the only reason that death is not number one on every list is that we pretend like it doesn't exist. Its shadow is so big and so looming that we just pretend like it's not there. And so what will happen is on those lists of our biggest fears, public speaking and spiders will be ahead of death. And the only reason is because we pretend like it doesn't actually exist. And so we could say that, we could stop there and go, well, that's a real upbeat thought for you this morning. There you go. All right. Glad you came together that we could talk about that. We're all going to die. We all go away in the end. But the reason I start there is is some of the things that we're going to look at today in Hebrews. As we've been walking our way through Hebrews, we're now in Hebrews chapter 6. And as we're walking our way through this book, a lot of what he's going to say here is very helpful as we think about this. And not just death or not just that, but all that is swirling around us in the world. Uh, We've been saying each week the letter to the church, the early church that was written, the book of Hebrews that we have, is a letter written to the early church that's struggling with a lot of things swirling around them. And it's a letter written to encourage, and it's a letter in, uh, written to help them in their day. Uh, a struggling church is trying to come to grips with what's around them. Uh, I can't think of a more relevant topic for the church today. Struggling with all that's going on around us, and here it is to encourage us. And what we've been seeing as we look through the book of Hebrews is it says to us over and over, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. He's better than everything. And so you see that repeating, and we've talked about that over and over, these comparisons. Jesus is better than, and he goes through all these things week after week. Uh, We titled this sermon series, when we started at the very beginning, that Jesus is better than everything. Because that's what he's going to tell you over and over again, and he makes these comparisons. But then today, he's going to make a comparison. He's going to bring up Abraham, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But then he's going to bring that up and talk about Abraham, and then he's going to point to you to say that Jesus is our anchor, That he's our anchor in all that's going on. And so we're going to look at that idea and think about that this morning. That he's bigger, that he's the one that sustains us, that he's our anchor. And so the questions I want us to ask as we work our way through Hebrews 6, we're going to be in verses 13 to 20. We're going to work our way through the end of chapter 6. The questions are simply this. First, why does God have to be our anchor? And what I mean by that is why can only God be our anchor? And then secondly, why can we trust him as our anchor? And then lastly, consider how that helps us today. Right? So why does God have to be our anchor? Why can we trust him as our anchor? And then how that helps us today. So let's pray first, and then we will look together at Hebrews 6. Lord, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds as we open your word today, that your spirit would lead and guide and teach us. Uh, you know each person here. You know them intimately and fully. You know their struggles. You know exactly how they come here today. And I pray that you would take the truth of your word and you would apply it to their hearts. That you would teach them and guide them and lead them and encourage them. And that we leave here seeing more clearly your glory and what that means for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we do this, why God has to be our anchor, why we can trust him as our anchor, and then how that helps us. And so let's just start with this idea of why God has to be our anchor. And in a lot of ways, that's what Hebrews is answering for us over and over and over again. Because what we've talked about is this is the very early church. They're struggling with what it means to now be Christian Versus just say, Jewish as they were before, what the Old Testament things look like in relation to now Christ and how they find their fulfillment of him? And so what we've seen in Hebrews over and over is this comparison of Jesus of everything. Right at the beginning of Hebrews 1, God spoke to us through the prophets and now its son. Jesus is better than the prophets. Uh, The rest of chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. We see Jesus is our perfect high priest. Jesus is better than Moses. And you start to get this list of all the things that he turns you to. He he's, uh, turns you from. Don't go back to these things. Go to Jesus. And what he's doing is all the things that the early church would have wanted to turn to in difficult times that they're facing. They would want to go back to Moses. They'd want to go back to the temple. They'd want to go back to sacrifices. they want to go back to the high priest. He's going, no, no, no. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. And so we can read that and we can go, well, yeah, that makes sense for first century Christians and they're trying to come to grips. The temple's most likely still functioning at the time and they see it there and they go, well, we want to go back to that. We don't have those same pull, that same pull today. But I would say to you that we do, in all different ways, look to put other things that we try to hold on to. Nothing more clearly evident than right now is everything ramps up for an election next year. Suddenly, everyone starts grabbing hold of a candidate they like, right? This will be our anchor. This will fix things. This will make things better. And so we don't go and look to the temple or we don't look to Moses, but we look to the worldly things around us. Oh, this guy will fix it. Or we look to things like uh, luxuries in our life. If I just had this or if I just had this uh, more money or a better job or whatever it is, and we seek to hold on to different things to be our anchor. But the message of Hebrews is just as relevant for us. We may not be turning to those things, but the answer is the same. Jesus is better than all those. And so we keep coming back to that picture and that idea. But what he's going to do here in Hebrews chapter 6 is go back to Abraham. Now, we've talked about this. People who are a Jewish people predominantly in the church, and they're dealing with what this looks like and all these things. And so he hits on all these different Uh, Old Testament things and now he goes to Abraham we talked about Moses a couple chapters ago Abraham father of the faith father Abraham we sing the song he had many sons right we could all sing that together and do the right that whole picture that's there and so he goes back to Abraham and look at what he says here about Abraham and the promises God makes so verse 13 for when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And so I want us just to think about Abraham for just a second and what God did through him and how he used him and what that looks like. And so what we're talking about here and what's alluded to here is what we often call the Abrahamic covenant. It runs throughout scripture. It goes all the way back. Uh, It's introduced to us in Genesis chapter 12. And if you're not familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, that's okay. I'll give you the big picture of it. You don't have to know it. There's not be a quiz on what chapter it's in, but we get it in uh, Genesis 12 and then God reiterates it in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 18 tells us over and over and over again. And in that covenant, it's really a continuation of what God promises to Adam and Eve in the garden. If you know the big picture, the big story, we were created to know God and to walk intimately with him, trusting him in all things. And Adam and Eve decided that we're going to go out on our own and trust ourselves rather than God. And we say this over and over, but that's what sin is, ignoring God and the world he created. And so Adam and Eve do that, and in doing that, sin enters the world and spreads to all things like a virus. It gets into everything. But God immediately upon that happening says to Adam and Eve, I'm going to fix this problem. And so in Genesis 3, in verse 15, God says, through the seed of Eve, I'm going to fix this. There's one coming through your seed, Eve, that's going to fix this problem. And we get this very first promise in Genesis 3. Well, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God gives, the promise he gives to Abraham, picks that idea up in Genesis 12. And God comes to this guy, Abram. But later we'll change his name to Abraham. And he comes to Abram and he tells them that I'm going to do this great thing in and through you. He says, I'm going to do this incredible thing. And he picks up the promise that he gave to Eve in Genesis 3. And he tells Abram, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. Just like he said to Eve, I'm going to fix this problem through your seed. And so Abraham, a descendant of Eve, I'm now going to bless the world through your seed. But then uh, God, through Abraham, begins to kind of fan out. The promise gets a little more detailed. He says, not only am I going to bless the world through your seed, but I'm going to give you tons of descendants. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation, and then I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God makes this covenant with Abraham, and I'm going to do all these things, this incredible thing with you. And so the picture is, is he tells them, I'm going to do this. But when you read here, he goes back to Abraham and he reminds us of this. But look at what he tells us. God made the promise to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to do it and I'm going to be the one that brings this. And then you get to verse 15 and it says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. It's a little bit of an understatement. Patiently waited. Do you know how long it took for this to become fleshed out, this promise that he gives to Abraham? Was it Abraham's kids that got this or his grandkids or the third or fourth generation? No, it actually took a couple thousand years to see the fullness of what God was promising to Abraham. And so it says he patiently waited for the promise. Yes, absolutely he patiently waited. But the picture that we see is that Abe goes to the grave, right? he dies, just like everyone else we know, he comes to the end of his life and none of it has been fulfilled. Right? Abraham did his part. By faith, he believed God. Hebrews 11 will tell us that when we get there. By faith, Abraham looked and he trusted God and he went forward. But he died not seeing any of it. God told him, you're going to have the descendants as numerous as the stars. And when he dies, he's got a couple. Right? There's not much. Not much to show for it. He says, I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham moves and God shows him. And he says, I'm going to give you this. But he never takes possession fully of the land that God gives him. He says, you're going to be a great nation. He never even comes close to seeing that. And so Abraham dies not having seen any of it. None of it's come to fruition when he passes away. And so the picture I want you to think about is when we look at Abraham and we look at this incredible promise of God and all that he did through Abraham, how much of that did Abraham in his own power accomplish? Here, right. right. He moved. He was faithful. He listened. He did what God told him. He put those things... He did his small part and walked it out in faith. He stumbled a few times along the way. But he did what God called him to. But he didn't see any of it come to fruition. And the truth is, when you put your hope in any one person or any one thing... They're going to not be able to do it. If we look to Abraham and go, look at what all Abraham did, and it's like, well, wait a second. All this happened in the next 2,000 years. It wasn't Abraham that made these things happen. It was God that made these things happen. And so when we make our anchor anything other than God, it's going to disappoint us. It can't do it. And so it has to be God. And so that's the second thing I want us to think about. I want us to look at his reasoning here on why we can trust God, that he is our anchor. And so it says in verse 13, for God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And then he goes on to tell us that he becomes an anchor for our soul. Verse 18, we who had fled for refuge might have strong encouragement To hold fast to the hope set before us. We have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And so I want us just to think about that image that he points us to. And he uses what God's done through Abraham to help give us this hope and this encouragement that God is trustworthy. And so the picture that's there, that image of an anchor, I want you to think about what an anchor does. Think about the image that he chooses to use. An anchor keeps you uh, from drifting in the water. But you go out and you drop your anchor and it kind of keeps you in that spot from going off. I heard a guy talking about um, going fishing in Lake Erie. If you've ever seen Lake Erie, it's one of the great lakes. You stand on the shore of Lake Erie and it looks like an ocean. You can't see the other side. It's enormous. And he'd stand there and he said he'd go out fishing and he'd go out with his kids to go fishing, but they'd go out really far, but they'd have to drop an anchor because if they didn't, the currents would draw them out to the middle of the lake and then they wouldn't get back before it was dark.
1: And so it was important that they had an anchor. It would
0: keep them secure from just drifting out. And so think for just a second how an anchor actually works. First, it has to be attached to you. It has to be committed to you. If you just throw your anchor over the side of the boat but it's not attached to the boat, how does that help you? And it goes right to the bottom and you continue to float and it does you no good. So it's got to be attached to you. But then secondly, it has to go where you can't go and do what you can't do. Does that make sense? Right. I want my boat to stay where it is. I can't jump in the water and swim down away in the end. You get old enough and you see a lot of the people that you used to know they're no longer around. That's a difficult thing to deal with. You need an anchor that holds you fast in the midst of getting old. We need an anchor to hold us fast in the world that is around us. I heard a lot of people say recently, there's a lot of things right now uh, that I never thought I'd see in my life. Things are changing fast. And a lot of them are difficult and hard, and we need an anchor. We need something to hold us fast in the midst of that. And so I want you to think about the promise that he points us to and how that points us to that we can trust God. And so he goes back, look at the picture he says where God made a promise to Abraham and he swore by himself. He's pointing us back to Genesis 15, the
1: second time God reiterates
0: this promise to Abraham. Genesis 15, God takes Abraham outside and he says, look at the stars. Millions. And he now has descendants like the stars all over. And that would continue to grow and to get bigger. But right there you see God uh, bringing fruition. But it took some 400 years after Abraham. He didn't see any of that. And so you see that picture fulfilled. Then you get to Joshua. Joshua takes the Israelites into the land and they conquer the land. And you get to the end of the book of Joshua, and it tells us in Joshua 21, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled in it. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. People and land. You get to Solomon, they become the greatest nation on the face of the earth. People coming from all over to see all that Solomon's built and all he's done and all this picture nation. People, land, Nation. But then he says, I'm going to bless the world through your seed, Abraham.
1: And so that takes
0: a little bit longer. And the story continues to unfold. And it gets to the point where God says, I'm going to do this through your seed, but it's something I'm going to do. And we see the fulfillment of the blessing of all people when God himself says, I'm going to step into the story as the incarnation. God says, I will come in. And I will come through the seed of the woman. And I will bless the nations through your seed, Abraham, when Jesus comes. And he comes and says, I will be cut off for you. I will take your place. I will take on myself your sin that you can be restored to God through what I do. And so he does. Abraham doesn't see any of this. It's all God's doing. And you get to Galatians 3, and I love this passage as you get to Galatians 3, the picture that's there. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That promise that he started with Abraham, 4,000 years years ago had you in mind. I'm going to bless the world through your seed, Abraham. And he knew you were going to be part of it. Actually, if you read all of the scriptures, it says before God laid the foundation of the earth, he knew hell he was going to do that. It goes back even further than that. And so we start to think about an anchor for your soul that's tied to you, that is for you, that goes where you can't do and does what you cannot do. And then you see how the Abrahamic covenant begins to open Trust Him to be your anchor. And so I want us just to think... the one who made these promises and then made good on them, one after another after another. But then the second thing I'd say is if you are trusting him, you are putting your faith in Jesus, and you are putting your faith in what he's done, that Jesus is better, you get here to verse 18 and he says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. When He is your anchor, it stabilizes you no matter what's going on around you. We've said over and over that Hebrews is a book that's pointing us from a journey from weariness to rest. It's people that are weary and struggling and frustrated with all that's around them. Weariness to rest and what that looks like. And the picture that's being painted in Hebrews is not that you escape all the things around them, that in Christ, anchor you have, when you hold fast to Him, you can have rest despite the circumstances. In the midst of that, He's got you. All the way through this, He has you. Think about the picture that's here. The God who started this promise some 4,000 years ago, I'm going to bless you. And Paul says, that's us. In Christ, we've been heirs according to the promise that we're brought into that. That He's holding you fast. The anchor goes to places that you can't go and does things you can't do. You can be scared of dying and aging and the things that are there, but our anchor goes beyond death. It goes beyond eternity, and it can hold you fast in all things. And then the last thing I would say is that God's promises are trustworthy, but they're also greater than anything you can imagine. Think about Abraham. When God first called more fully now we know what the Abrahamic covenant was talking about and what it was pointing us to but the fullness of Jesus' return and the complete fulfillment of all this we still don't see that part God's promises are far greater than anything you can imagine not only do we have an anchor that holds us fast but what it's tied to and what the fulfillment is going to be is far greater than anything else you possibly can imagine Can have it all, my empire of dirt. I say, yeah, you can, because what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man has imagined, God has prepared for those who love Him. And that's your answer in Jesus. So let's pray. Father, so we thank you that the promises that you give us far exceed anything that we can possibly fathom. That you are trustworthy. That your word shows us that it holds fast. That you show us completely and clearly how you're moving and how you're working and how we can trust you in all those things. We thank you for that. We thank you that it, it uh, gives us the comfort and the promise and the trust in the midst of all that we face and that we can rest in that. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name.